0: My name is Jim Edmonds, and I'll be reading the text for today, which is James chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all that he created. I hope you have your Bibles open so you can look at the text with us today. We are continuing in the book of James. It does go slower at first. James is dense. There's a thickness to it. It's almost like more than you can handle to go too quick. He does cover larger uh, sections of verses with themes to come, starting in chapter 2. But chapter 1, it's just small sections where... He speaks truth into us. Remember what I said, James is a form of what's called wisdom literature. And wisdom wants to get in your business and challenge how you live. So we've been listening to James talk about how we deal with suffering and how we deal with our finances, how we pursue living wisely. And here in this context, James wants to make sure we understand God properly. If you were with us last time, we looked at this Text in the verses just before this where James is talking about suffering, and then he, and then he stops. He, after explaining the purpose of suffering, he explains what suffering is not. He says suffering is not God playing with evil. So he corrects misunderstanding. God isn't playing with evil. God doesn't mess with evil. So these verses are really following that same theme. If God is not an evildoer, what kind of God is he? Remember the quote from Tozer we've stated here from time to time, the most important thought you will ever think is the thought you think when you hear the word God. So knowing and living rightly under what you know about God is of extreme importance for the Christian. So much so that God himself, through the letter of James, stopped and says, listen, if you've got any kind of bent to impute to me or impose on me some of the evil in the world that is happening to you... Correction. You're deceived. Let me correct that for you. That's what these verses need to say. After explaining what God does not do, these verses describe what God does, what kind of God he is. There's much that we can learn from it. I'll pray in a minute, but before I do, I'll just tell you right now the way this text communicates to us. Verse 16 is the warning. Don't be deceived. Verse 17 is the explanation who this God is. And verse 18 is an example, the way that this works out in our life for us to see. So would you pray with me as we prepare to respond to the word of the Lord? Father, thank you for the fact that we, as as Nate rightly said, this church's choir, a couple hundred of us could sing to you praise your greatness. You are, we said, Father, you are the great I am, not us. So help us to learn from these three verses how that is true and to live accordingly. So guide us, soften our calloused hearts, up our minds to understand, up our lives to be transformed as we sit under your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. My reflection on verse 16 is what I say in that first point this morning. Christians must learn the truth about God and live according to that truth. Because James is worried that we could be deceived about God. Note what what he says in verse 16. Don't be deceived. And then he adds this qualification, my dear brothers and sisters. Accusing God of evil is a serious matter. That was the temptation that James was warning us of in the verses just following, verses 13 through 15. James begins his word to us in this passage with that warning. Don't be deceived about God. You need to know who he is. You must learn what's true about God so you can live according to that truth. But before he even gets to the explanation, he's loaded with these pastoral tones, that little phrase that we might just skip over, my dear brothers and sisters. Note the the familial language, it's family talk, it's brothers and sisters, it's the church. That you've been adopted by God, he is your father through Christ. You have the one same spirit shared, that you are family. He speaks, this is a family meeting. And I like how he says, my brothers and sisters. He's including himself in that. He's part of our family. He's he's part of the one who's receiving this warning as his own. And even that word dear, the NIV translates it as dear. Other translations do something different. The root of that Greek word has the Greek word agape, which I bet some of you know is the noun for love. Some translations translate it as beloved but dear gets that sense. It's a term of affection. But, I, but, but I, li- I like the beloved part. You're not just brothers and sisters in some sociological way. You've been adopted by God the Father. He cares for you. So think rightly about your father. Don't be deceived. But before we go on to the explanation of verse 17, let me, let me remind you how serious this exhortation not to be deceived is. If we go back to the very beginning of Scripture, the very first encounter humanity had with Satan was lies about God. The very first thing Satan did, who elsewhere in Scripture is called the father of lies. Think of that difference. God is our father, Satan is the father of lies. The first thing Satan did to Adam and Eve in the garden, was lie to them about God. He tried to deceive them. So much so that by John 8, Jesus literally calls Satan the deceiver. So that word, don't be deceived, has a connection to the whole biblical story. In fact, if we had time, and I'm not going to have us turn there, but I just want to summarize for you the ways that Satan did this in Genesis 3. His opening words to Eve in the garden, Genesis 3 verse 1, Like, what's a good opening? Hey, my name's Satan. What's yours? Like, he didn't say that. Like, sorry, I look kind of awkward, but ignore that and let me ask you a couple questions. Here was his opening line to Eve. Did God really say? That's the first thing he says. He, He didn't even deal with the formalities to begin the conversation. He got right to his agenda. Satan tried to distort God's word. Did God really say? The first words of Satan. He was calling God a liar. He wanted you to second guess, us to second guess what God's word said, what God commands. The second thing he did in Genesis 3, and this is shown in verse 5, besides trying to distort, distort God's word Satan tried to distort God's intention. Here's another statement from Satan in verse 5 of Genesis 3. For God knows if you do this, you will be like God. Meaning God's holding something back from you. You have access to all this stuff but he's holding it back from you. He's being deceptive to you. Satan was calling God a selfish evil doer. So so put this command from James in verse 16 of chapter 1, in the larger context of Scripture, since the beginning of creation, humanity has been challenged by Satan or by their own sinful bent to distort what is true about God and what he has said in his word. This isn't just a small concern of James. This affects everything. Brothers and sisters, let us not be us, but be aware if our, our first mother and father dealt with this challenge, so will we. The, the reflection and the application is this. When we believe a lie about God, we live in relation to God in the wrong way. Like if you believe a lie about God, if you have a distorted view of how God works and who God is... You will not live properly in relation to God. My uh, family's been in town this weekend, and we were having a conversation the other night, and I shared with our family the very first fight Laura and I had back in, I don't know, 97 or 98, before we were even married. It was over black bean soup. And yeah, one of my kids like, seriously, Dad? That seems kind of ridiculous. Yeah, it probably was. But beyond that first argument, I remember an argument a few years later. And, and, and I've, I've shared this several times, you know, every pre-marriage counseling that Laura and I have done, because as I've said to several young couples, some even in this room, it, it's not if you're going to fight, it's how you're going to fight. So don't just think about the if, think about the how, how are you going to fight? Because it's not a question if you'll fight, it's how you fight that makes the difference. And I still remember sitting in this chair that we still, for some reason, have. Back when our boys, I mean, this was pre-Ruthie. Our boys were little guys and in bed already, and I, I don't remember at all. I don't think it was black bean soup this time, but we were arguing over something, and I remember sitting in that chair, and I remember her sitting on the floor just a few feet from me, and tears started to flow down her eyes, and she looked at me, with a bit of force. And she says, I'm not your opponent. I'm your wife. The goal is not one of us winning. It's the two of us working together. And I'm telling you, whatever force field was blocking other arguments, it had let down for that second. And I felt like a sledgehammer whacked me in the forehead. And I saw clearly what she had seen that I hadn't seen. I was debating her, I was trying to win an argument, like I had a distorted view of what the whole purpose was over any particular topic, and how our marriage union was supposed to work together. I thought it was about fighting and winning, not working together and reconciling and harmonizing. And She saw it clearly, and I did not, and I don't remember the exact words, but I remember still with her crying saying to her, I am sorry. I hadn't seen it that way. I was wrong. See, I I was believing a distorted truth about what the purpose was of a disagreement or how a disagreement should get worked out. And the moment that's distorted, all of my activities were misaligned from the purpose of what I was supposed to be doing. She wasn't my opponent. She wasn't a interlocutor in a debate she was my bride. If that's true in our marriages, how much more is that true in our walk with Christ? Christians, God does not play with evil in relation to you. He is the one who overcomes evil with good. So get that in your mind. Don't be deceived. If you think or have some assumption, even instinct, when difficulty comes, that it's God who's playing with evil or hurting you in some way, or you feel this anger against God, you are not understanding the truth about who he is. And you will not live in relation to him the right way. That's what verse 16 is trying to warn us. Now, if the lie is to be rejected, then how should we think about the way God works over and for his children. That's verse 17. Verse 17 says this, and again, I hope you have the text open because I want to show you the specific words and phrases in 17. This is what James says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. Uh, Notice, notice there's three clauses separated by those two commas. And each of those clauses say something important. Here would be my little summary of the the message of that verse. Clause one, God's gifts are everywhere and they're perfect. Clause two, the entire creation is a reflection of his goodness. Clause three, mild correction, but don't let the magnitude of creation or your shifting circumstances define God for you because God doesn't change. Let's look at the details. First clause, every good and perfect gift is from above. That, that phrase, from above, means that everything comes from God. In fact, that little statement is a bit of a slap on the wrist to the way you and I speak of natural things. Right? Yeah, we, we understand natural is a good way to summarize things that just kind of seemingly automatically happen, but in reality, nothing's automatically happening that isn't a gift from God. All things come from God, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the praise forever and ever. Amen. Romans 11.36. We are literally being discipled by James, not to just think of things as natural, but as gifts from God the Father. That's why the church has long used this category of common grace. Uh, we, I have said that a lot around here. So if, if you hear me say that, you're like, I know, Klink. I'm like, well, too bad, because somebody next to you might not have heard it, because it's that important. Right? If you can think of the world as in, engaged in dealing with a common curse, think Genesis 3, right? Cancer falls upon the bodies of the saved and the unsaved. War strikes A Christian in the nation, the same way it strikes a non-Christian, right? Economic crises, relational issues, they can can befall us in lots of different ways, Christian or non-Christian. But if you think of common curse, you gotta think of common grace. When the rain falls, it is a gift from God. When the harvest is plentiful, it is a gift from God. When God designs mines to create buildings with air conditioning, it is a gift from God or to produce food, or hands that have skill to to invent things, or to care for us. That is God's common grace. It's God's common grace for us. In fact, maybe that challenge that Vera was raising for our kids is for all of us. Can you think of how everything you have is part of God's gracious provision for you? What makes it common is it's not just for Christians. It's not like the rain only falls on your green yard. And your non-Christian neighbor is just, it's a scorched earth. Like it's common because it's gifted from the creator. So it equally falls on the Christian and the non-Christian. Special grace Think of the S like Savior is only what the Christian gets through the work of Jesus Christ as Savior. You get the connection to God the Father, the mediating work of Christ who sits at the right hand of God and intercedes on our behalf. You have the indwelling Holy Spirit that lets you see the world differently and gives you the guarantee of eternal life and the fullness of his peace and comfort and counsel and care. That's special grace. That only comes from the Savior. But common grace like rain or that tasty meal or penicillin or a skilled nurse or a safe home or a heater that works in the winter or a good teacher. All of those things are common. You don't have to be a Christian to drive on a smooth road or to experience the cool breeze on a warm day. Those are common graces. But notice, it's not just mother nature, is it? It's not just nature, like natural. There really is a supernatural that the Christian knows deep down is because God is the one, verse 17, who gives every good and perfect gift. That's what the second clause is adding. Coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights... That that little phrase, Father of the heavenly lights, is used by James to depict God as the creator who created a good world. He's borrowing the image of Genesis at the beginning of the Bible. A good creator who created a world filled with every kind of goodness, not merely a scientist, though, or an engineer, even though he is all of those things, but a father That language of coming down, you know, that, that, that's that image of that hard rain, that overwhelming abundance of generosity. God gives good gifts like a hard rain covering every piece of grass and every square inch of the ground is the common grace gifts of God. That's the kind of God you have. No, notice how this text is forming us what is true about God. It's reminding us what is true. Everything that is good and perfect comes from God. That's the kind of God that he is. Finally, the mild correction, that last clause in verse 17. Who does not change like shifting shadows. Don't let, James is saying, don't let your circumstances. That's what we do, though. You, you, you understand what I'm saying Don't let your circumstances change your definition of God. God does not change. You go from a clean bill of health to medical crisis. God has not changed. Yet that instinct is to, why is God doing this to me? I feel angry with God now. What is God's point? Why, why would God allow this to happen? Our instinct is to put us at the center and not Christ. But I heard, I mean, I didn't check off all your lips were moving, or you could have been doing watermelon, man the whole time, but I'm guessing most of you just called him the great I am. And you weren't talking about you. You're talking about him. He's the I am. He's the constant. He is good. So creation and our circumstances are defined by God, not God by creation in our circumstances. Our circumstances are to be understood according to who God is. We do not understand God based upon our circumstances because life is hard. Bad things will happen. Life is difficult. And when those bad things happen, you will be tempted to be deceived or you will believe the lie God knows. He knows what he's doing, like Satan would say. He's holding things back from you. He's being cruel. Did God really say? No, brothers and sisters, don't be deceived. You know, if anything, that verse 17 struck me with this truth, that maybe one of the main responses to the gospel and to our Lord for the Christian should be the virtue of gratitude. For what should we not be thankful? For the Christian, Thanksgiving is every day. And every little thing, for the breath that you have right now, the fact that you can see and hear some better than others in both of those categories, the fact that you can have a meal, clothes on your back, a roof over your head, friendships, provisions, we couldn't even count them. There's so many. We take them for granted. We need to apply this truth to the context of our suffering trials. God is good. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down with abundance from the Father who created all things, and He does not change. Now, next week, when We take a break in from James and we do Psalm 14 for our celebration of the Lord's Supper. At the end of every Lord's Supper, we sing a song that probably most of you know, it's called the doxology. And you know the first line of that doxology is, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Now think of, think of next Sunday, some of us will come in here and we're just in a great mood been a good day. Life is full. We feel great. Good to see people. We come to the supper of Christ and give me that juice. I love this stuff. And thanks for the bread. Jesus is great. And we sing that song and praise God from whom all blessings flow. And others are going to walk in here and we don't even want to sing. And we don't want to talk to that overly happy guy either. And we sit down and we don't maybe share what's going on, but we are broken. We are grasping for life. It's not the sun shining down on me on that song that we sing, when the world's the way it should be. No, we come in from the road marked with suffering. When there's pain in the offering, that's how we might come in next week. We take that cup and we think, Lord, you suffered for this. You can relate to my brokenness. We'll take that bread and we'll say it was your broken body. Even still, when we get to the end of the supper, we will sing the same words together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Because it's not our circumstances that define who God is. God, who is supremely generous and eternally unchanging, is the source of all good things, and we trust in him. Now, James ends in verse 18 with an example, and it's an interesting example that he chose. It's the clearest example of God's generous and unchanging gifts, and it's our new life in Christ. It's our salvation. Here's what he says, and it's loaded with rich biblical imagery, Verse 18 in James 1, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth. That we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Now be aware, the language James is using is clearly talking about our salvation. It's not talking about the first creation. It's talking about the new creation. And the two key phrases that are used elsewhere in the New Testament that let us know that is that language of birth, because we're already living, obviously. But even first fruits, which is key, it's a key word to talk about the new creation, the harvest that is coming, and there's the first bloom of it. And then he says this, that that, that phrase, the word of truth, that is used elsewhere in the New Testament to talk about the gospel. It's talking about our spiritual giftedness in Christ. So, notice how this one verse says several things about your salvation. First, your salvation is God's choosing. He chose. It wasn't because you merited it or said, Can I have? It was just flowing out of who He is. He chose. Second, your salvation is God's gift. He chose to give us, it's a gift. It's not like he said he chose to go Dutch on this one. It doesn't say that. And when we sing the song, he paid it all. It's not he paid it. Half. Half we still owe. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. And third, and here, here, here's, I think, the key, and I, I'll, I'll try to explain this, that last phrase of our text this morning, your salvation is one aspect of the already of the new creation. That we might, here's the words, Andrew, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. So let me, let me try to explain this, right? 60 seconds. The world is totally broken. Like sin has affected everything. The, the first creation is literally in darkness. There is no true life. What he made good has been distorted. Creation itself is groaning. And the whole, every single creature is separated from God. And God enters into that darkness. He is the one called the light. The darkness did not overcome it. He dwelt among us. And his resurrection, what we celebrate on Easter, is the first fruit officially. It's the beginning of the new creation. It is proof that new life has started. It's that first little blossom on the apple tree. It's boom, it's there. Now guess what's second? You and me. Maybe not on the outside yet. We don't have resurrected bodies yet. We still have the cancer and the sickness and the war and the broken relationships and the sinful flesh. We have all that. But on the inside, we are being renewed. The beginning of the new creation. Christ's new life is given to us. And now the new creation is working in us. That's why we gather here. That's why funerals are different for a Christian. That's why we can just sing that death no longer has a hold. We sing praises to our God. That is the beginning of the new creation. So now, translate that back into your situation. When something difficult comes and you are tempted to wanna blame God, first you say, no, because I know who God is. That is not my God. I will not be deceived. But second, proof of his goodness is that he has actually already begun to renew you. You can just look at your own testimony, your own new life in Christ, that you yourself as a Christian are a kind of first fruits of all he created. He has already begun to fulfill his promise in you. So then how can you call him unfaithful? He's already given you a down payment. That's how Paul speaks of the Holy Spirit. A seal, a guarantee. It might be not yet, but there isn't already. So with us in view, brothers and sisters, how should you and I think about our life? What, what is James 1, 16 to 18, is to think about our life. How about, this? how about the details of our lives? How about the good things in our lives? Do we take them for granted or realize all good things are from God? When the sun's shining down on me, praise be to God. Don't take it for granted. On the road marked with suffering, God is good. He doesn't change. He is with me. He has already started his new creation work in me. I will not be deceived. I will not put myself at the center. So let me give you a couple commitments that I recommend we make in regard to this text. The first is a commitment of obedience into this verse. And it would be this, we will not blame God or think poorly of him when we face difficulties. that, That has to be the kind of commitment James 1, 16, 18 wants you to make. We will not blame God or think poorly of him when we face difficulties. He is the I am. And we simply say, yes, you are. We do not let our circumstances define God. What causes my suffering? The common curse affecting all creatures and all things. The sin of others, individual or systemic collective. And my own sin, not God. And here's a second commitment. And maybe this is a reflection that we could make from this. I, or we, will let gratitude abound in us as we see the world as an infinite number of gifts from our gracious Heavenly Father. In fact, I almost want to say, kids, when you're driving home today with mom or dad or grandma or grandpa, from the parking lot of the church to your own driveway... How many different things can you see and explain as a beautiful gift from God? Just a beautiful tree, or the fact that you're driving and not walking. Or the fact that you're with your family, siblings included, or the fact that maybe if you need it, the air condition is on. Or the fact that you're breathing right now, or that you're heading home and there's food to be had at lunch? And maybe when you pull in your driveway, you stop as a family and you pause and you pray and you just thank God for all the things you might've taken for granted in the whatever number of miles it would be to drive home. You stop and say, thank you, God, for all these good gifts. And be aware, whatever you see, there's probably a billion you're not even seeing. But this text reminds us to look for them. Because we as the people of God, when the sun's shining down on us or on the road marked with suffering, know this truth. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Let's pray. Father, we are filled with gratitude as we even think about your gifts to us, and we're filled with sadness, and penitent hearts as we realize how many times we, with no authority and lack of accuracy, challenge your goodness simply because we're not happy or because we're hurting. How dare we? Help us not to be deceived, as James warned us. Help us to see the common grace and special grace gifts of our Father and to live a life in relationship to you that is properly defined by the truth. To not blame you when things go bad, rather to praise you even when things are good and we don't think about you. Father, may that be the posture and the practice of these Christians in this local church. Thank you for your faithful word to us. Thank you that you We're not afraid to get into our business and to challenge how we live. May we respond properly, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.